0: My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. Uh, we are excited about next Sunday, uh, Celebration Sunday. Uh, we have at least four baptisms for sure, and possibly up to six that we know of right now. Got a couple conversations yet to have, but uh, we're really excited about that. I hope you're excited too, and uh, and also just grateful. That the Lord has been answering those prayers, that that we get to celebrate some baptisms here on that Sunday. And so uh, we're looking forward to uh, just a great Sunday celebrating God's saving work in the lives of some of our brothers and sisters. And as we continue in the book of Jonah, we get to see the saving work of God in in Jonah's life. Uh, So far, just kind of catch us up. We've seen that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the prophet of God, instructing him to go to Nineveh, that great city, to preach. God's message to those people. Uh, But Jonah ran from God's word. He ran from God's presence and went as far as he could, was trying to go as far as he could in the opposite direction of where God had instructed him to go. Uh, But God, of course, is not going to let him get away that easily. God sends a great storm around the boat on which Jonah is traveling on Uh, which threatens to destroy the entire ship and everyone who's on board, not just Jonah, but all the the pagan sailors. And after trying everything that they possibly could uh, to to get out of that storm, uh, this group of compassionate pagan sailors uh, agree to Jonah's wishes, and they reluctantly toss the uh, apathetic prophet into the sea. And immediately the storm ceases, right, and the sea grows calm. And through these events, we saw last week, right, these pagan sailors come to know the one true and living God. They take the covenant name of Yahweh, the covenant name of God upon themselves, the name that's only used by God's covenant people, the people who are His, and they worship Yahweh and they experience a conversion. And that's where we pick things up this week. Jonah's still out there, just adrift in the sea, uh, in the middle of the sea, right where God wants him. And throughout the events of this book, right, we, we understand God's main purpose has been to get Jonah to understand his grace, to help Jonah understand God's grace. And really, through our reading of the book, God's main purpose is to get us to understand grace. If it's possible for one of God's prophets to be confused about the mystery of God's mercy and ignorant about the depth of God's grace, then it's certainly more than possible for you and I to be so as well. And in our text today, God is inviting us to see the wonder of His mercy and to become more enlightened to the beauty and depth of His grace that's what we're going to see, I hope, as we dig in to Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, the last verse of chapter 1, and through the end of chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 10. Jonah 1, 17 through two ten. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Hear the word of the Lord. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord for his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried and you heard my voice for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life, the deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O oh Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray uh, that today you'd help us to see that all of us in this room are on level ground. We are people in need of your grace. And I pray, we pray by your spirit that you'd help us to see your provision, your gracious provision for each of us that meets us where we're at. Not where we hope to be, not where we long to be, but where we're at. It meets us It welcomes us, it envelops us with your love. Help us to to rest in your grace and and come awake to to the depth and the wonder of what your grace truly is and what it means. Lord, we pray you have your way with us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may have a seat. Jonah's time in in the belly of the great fish helps us better understand God's grace as it shows us where grace meets us, what grace is, and how grace works. First, we're invited to consider where grace meets us. Uh, We are told in verse 17 that, that it was the Lord that appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. All throughout this book, we are, we are being subtly informed about the providence of God, God's absolute sovereignty over everything that is happening around us and in us and in our lives. Right? It, God is absolutely sovereign over everything. It is God who sends the storm to the boat. It is God who is the one behind the lot falling on Jonah. God sends the fish to swallow him, and, and, and so on and so on. We are meant to see that it is God who is the one who has orchestrated this moment, who has brought this moment together at this precise time in history to, to, to teach Jonah something he desperately needs to understand? God has, has brought all this together, He's the one making it happen. As you look back on your life with 2020 hindsight, right, you can also see that, that, that some of the most important lessons that you have learned. In life, are the result of what we might call God's severe mercies. What's a severe mercy? Well, that refers to events in your life that at the moment are exceedingly difficult, uh, maybe even extremely painful. But later, you're able to see that how those events resulted in yielding more good in your life than you could have ever anticipated in the moment. God works good out of these severe mercies. He, he grabs a hold of us to teach us something in a, in a moment that feels not like anything we would have drawn up for ourselves. The great fish is a severe mercy for Jonah. And obviously, as we can see with that 2020 hindsight, the fish saved Jonah's life by swallowing him. I mean, left alone in the middle of the sea, just adrift out there, he's going to drown. Right? He's a dead man. He's a dead man. Yet you can imagine the terror of what Jonah actually experienced as he's swallowed by a great fish. You know, I don't know about you, but I love the beach. I love the ocean. I'm really looking forward to, Lord willing, hopefully actually getting to go see it here uh, in the next month or so. Uh, but but I am also the guy who's, when I'm in the water and I feel like even like a piece of seaweed brush against my leg, I'm certain I'm about to get eaten by a shark, right? Uh, I'm dead. Uh, but that freaks me out. But Jonah's literally swallowed by a great fish. Uh, can you imagine the terror uh, that he's actually experiencing that moment? And then inside the belly of the fish, he's taken further down into this watery prison to the very depths. Now, a little side note here, this is part of the reason why I believe that we should receive Jonah as a historical account and not as a parable. Because in, you know, literature, when you're making something up, you, you elaborate the, the kind of ridiculous and the over-the-top. But the fish is barely mentioned here. Like, it's just merely kind of like in passing, oh, by the way, he's swallowed by a fish. Uh, oh, by the way, it later vomits him out on dry land. Like, the fish has nothing to do. Like, there's no elaboration about the fish whatsoever. It's just a matter of fact. He's swallowed by a fish. In the belly of the fish, he prays. And then the Lord releases him and tells the fish to vomit him out on dry land. So that's why I received that. But, but here's the main idea we really need to get at, regardless of whether you agree with me on that or not. We, we've noted in past weeks this downward descent that Jonah is taking in the text. He went down to Joppa, And then he went down into a ship, and then even within the ship, he went down into the inner part of the ship and has fallen fast asleep. But now, now Jonah's going even further down into the very depths of the sea. Listen to these words throughout this prayer. Jonah, as he prays, he's cast into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounds him. The waters closed in over him. The deep surrounded him. Weeds are wrapped about his head at the roots of the mountains. He's at the very bottom of the sea. He went down to the land whose bars closed upon him forever. That's what he says as he prays. He descends further and further and further, all the way to the very bottom of the sea. Jonah's alive for now, but, but for how long? He's impossibly at this moment, impossibly far away from help and hope. There's nothing he can do to rescue himself. He is buried at the bottom of the sea, destined for destruction unless God provides another act of deliverance. At the bottom. Right? That's where God's grace meets us. At the very bottom. One commentator says that when you reject and disobey God like Jonah did, it takes radical treatment if it is to be remedied. And he goes on to say that it was only when Jonah was all the way down at the very depths of the ocean, finally stripped of his own buoyant self-sufficiency, only then was deliverance possible for him. In other words, Jonah had to be brought low in order to be brought up again. This is where grace meets us. This is where it meets us, at the very bottom. For so many of us, it's those severe mercies that expose our need for God's rescue, that leave us stripped bare of any self-sufficiency. And that's where we're met with God's grace. Think about some of those things in your life, whether it was a, a relationship that you thought was the one that came crashing down on you in the most Painful way. Or you experience great failure in the classroom or the workplace where you have put your identity as one who always excels, but then you fail miserably. Or you blow it big morally, maybe even legally. A hidden and embarrassing sin gets brought into the light and exposed. In the moment, those sorts of things can feel absolutely devastating, crushing, hopeless, helpless. You feel like you're buried, like you couldn't get any further down. Yet it's in those exact kind of moments that God loves to meet us with His grace, that He loves to come in And scoop us up into his arms. Those exact moments. Because it's really only moments like those that show us that we are not self-sufficient. That expose the truth. That we are not self-sufficient. That we are not capable on our own. That we are desperately in need of help and rescue. And it's only when you come to that place, when you reach the very bottom... When everything falls apart, when all your efforts and all your resources are broken and exhausted, it's only then that you can begin to understand and appreciate God's grace. It's only then that you are finally open to learning how to completely depend upon God and not yourself. As it's been said many times before, you never realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. If Jonah was ever going to find a way to ascend, both in the water, in the ocean there, literally, and in his faith, then he had to be brought to the very end of himself. The way up was first to be brought low. And Jonah helps us see that it's at the bottom, the very bottom, where grace meets us. But it's not simply being at the bottom that brings about change. Many people get leveled to the bottom and it does nothing for them. It's prayer at the bottom, right? It's prayer at the bottom. That's Jonah prays at the bottom. It's prayer at the bottom that begins the work of understanding and experiencing God's grace in your life. And in Jonah's prayer, we're also, it's also helping us to see what grace is. What grace is. Jonah cries to the Lord out of his distress, And as he speaks of God casting him into the deep, as he talks about being in the the belly of Sheol, right? The place of death. That's what Sheol is, the place of death. Sometimes in the Bible it literally refers to hell itself. The place of death. As he's praying this prayer, Jonah is aware of his own sin, he's aware of his own rebellion. He he has caused his distress by his own heart and actions. He's aware of this. And his disobedience of God, his rebellion against God, deserves death. He's saying that he understands this in this prayer. He deserves judgment for what he's done. He says in verse 4, right? You see this in verse 4. He says, I am driven away from your sight, I'm driven away from your presence. I do not deserve your presence. I've sinned against you. He understands that his sin rightfully should cut him off from the presence of God. That because of his sin, he should be eternally cut off from the presence of God. Jonah isn't in need of simply thinking more positively about himself, as our culture would maybe want to tell us. His problem isn't a lack of self-esteem here. His problem is his sin, his rebellion against God, his rejection of God's word and God's presence. That's his problem. And it's your problem and my problem too, apart from God's grace. But here's the thing. You cannot understand grace if you don't first understand your need for it. If you don't understand, you desperately need it. That your sin has wrecked your life, has cut you off from God's presence, has cut you off from ever deserving to be in God's presence. You can't possibly deserve to be in His presence based on your own merit. Right? You have to understand your need of grace before you can understand what it is. You need grace because you're sinful, because you have rebelled against God, because you sought to go your own way just like Jonah. And in your sin and rebellion against God, you deserve to be cut off from God's presence forever. That's the issue. That's the problem. To understand and experience the grace of God, you have to acknowledge that, but, but you've got to go further still. You can't you can't just stop at acknowledging that. You've got to go further. You must also admit that there's nothing that you can do about that problem. There's nothing that you can do to fix it. Nothing you can do to remedy your situation. There is no great work of good that you can do that will undo the damage done because of your sin and rebellion against God. No list of good works. No amount of good works. And this runs counter to our culture. The culture assumes, well, one, hey, we're generally not that bad. Right? We're basically good people. You haven't killed anyone. You just made a mistake. Everybody makes mistakes. Just think more positively about yourself. But even if the assumption is no, you actually really did mess up. You actually really did blow it in our culture. Then the prevailing thought is, we can fix this. You can overcome this. Here's what you need to do. And then we pursue doing some kind of moral good, righting our wrong, putting in the work, thinking that we will be able to outweigh the bad of our sin with enough good done in return. Maybe if you just work a little harder. Maybe if you get to church, maybe you start to pray more. Maybe if you read the Bible a little bit more, you serve more. That can counteract and overcome your wrongs, covering them and getting, getting you back in God's good graces. That's what we, we, You hear people say that all the time, getting back in God's good graces. How do they do that? Well, they got back to church and they started praying more and they started reading their Bible. They started serving, thinking of others more. Work, work, work. You can do it. That's the underlying thought and assumption of every other religion in the world. You can fix yourself through some kind of moral effort. But Jonah, in this prayer, he rejects that. He rejects that. He understands that's not true. You can't fix yourself through moral effort. You cannot right your wrongs. Your sin cuts you off from God's presence forever, and there's nothing that you can do to fix it. Nothing. He says that as he's sinking to the very bottom of the sea, he says that the bars closed upon me forever. Verse 6. In other words, Jonah realizes that his sin means that he stands eternally condemned that there's nothing he can do to right his wrong. The bars have closed in over him. They are sealed shut. Nothing he can do to open them for himself. The truth of this is, is captured so beautifully in the words of a famous hymn that we, we sing here at times. It says, Not the labors of my hands, can fulfill thy law's demands? Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. But do you understand what that's saying? Not all of the good works in the world, not all of the labor that you could put in, could ever atone and cover your sin. You cannot meet the law's demands, because the law demands perfect obedience and you failed to do that we all fail to do that you no amount of zeal and just enthusiasm no amount of sorrow and and weeping over your sin is enough to atone for your sin all of it fails only God can save you only he can atone for your sin and bring you back into right standing with him You can only understand grace to the extent that you recognize that because of your own sin, you are barred from God and you can do nothing to save yourself. Until you understand that, it's impossible for you to understand what grace is and to experience it. Jonah's prayer helps us understand grace by exposing our desperate need, but it also points us deeper still, for it also shows us the costliness of grace. Jonah's prayer begins in verse 2. He says, I call. Right? I call to the Lord out of my distress. I call. But his prayer makes a turn as it, as it moves forward. And you, you see verse 4 and verse 7, it begins to turn. And especially in verse 7, he really, Jonah's really beginning to ascend here when he says, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Do you see the shift? The prayer begins, I call, I call. And then it shifts in verse 4 to I look, I look upon your holy temple. And in verse 7, I remember, I look, I remember. What is Jonah doing here? He's not just looking to the temple, he's remembering. He's thinking about God. He's remembering who God has shown himself to be. He's remembering what God has done to pursue his people and to provide a way for his people to come into his holy presence, to enter into relationship with him. What, what God has done to enable people's worship of God. The key to, to grasping this is the temple. The temple, he mentions it twice. The temple, by looking and remembering the temple, Jonah is thinking about the gospel. The temple gives us a picture of salvation. It's an image of the gospel, a picture of how God is going to reconcile us to himself, of how God is going to deal with our sin and our rebellion and bring us back to him. How? Why is Jonah getting this from looking at and remembering the temple? Jonah knew that it was over the mercy seat in the temple, that, that that's where God promised to speak to his people in Exodus 25. That's where God's presence dwells, in the most holy place of the temple, over the mercy seat, over the Ark of the Covenant. The mercy seat, of course, is a golden slab that was on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark were the tablets of the Ten Commandments. On the Day of Atonement, one day a year, only one person was allowed to enter into that most holy place, The the high priest of Israel who would enter into the most holy place and sprinkle blood of an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people on the mercy seat, on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And Do you see? Do you think about what's happening there? Do you see what the temple represents? Do you see what it communicates? The temple is the place where God's holy presence dwells. His perfect presence. Holiness that cannot bear to be in the presence of sin. That's why our sin cuts us off from His presence. He's perfectly holy and righteous and just. And His perfect holiness is represented right there in the most holy place, under the mercy seat, in that ark, in those Ten Commandments, those tablets. They represent His perfect holiness that no human being ever has or ever will be able to keep perfectly. No one. How can we possibly approach such a holy God? How can we ever think to come in to his holy presence? Won't his law condemn us the moment we set foot in there? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. It would, except for the blood of the atoning sacrifice on that mercy seat over the Ten Commandments, shielding us from its condemnation. It's only when the sacrificial death of another secures our forgiveness that we can come into God's presence and speak with Him and worship Him. Obviously, Jonah isn't fully grasping all that is being pointed to in that. But it's hard for us to imagine this side of the cross and the empty tomb a better picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ than this. Romans 3.25, the apostle Paul tells us that Jesus was put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, the word propitiation, what does that mean? It it means to take wrath and avert it, right? To absorb wrath and turn it to favor. So so Jesus is put forward as one who, who is our sacrifice, our substitute, who takes the full cup of God's wrath that's meant for us in our sin. He takes eternal separation from God in our place and he turns, it, he soaks all of it up and he turns it to favor for you and I who are in Christ. He gives us grace, forgiveness, welcome. He takes the wrath, absorbs it all, turns it to favor. That's what propitiation means. Jesus was put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Romans 3.25 helps us to see that Jesus is the substitute, right? He's the the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice that's offered in our place. He's he's the blood on the mercy seat. But, But Jesus is more than that. He's also the mercy seat itself. He's the presence of God. God in the flesh. He's all of it. Grace is the good news that while we were sinners who could never do anything by our own effort to deal with or overcome our sin problem, grace is the good news that God accepts the payment of a substitute. And Jesus Christ is the substitute that lived the perfect sinless life, keeping the Ten Commandments in every way that we fail to. We break all ten. Every single one of them. We break all ten. You don't believe, I haven't killed anyone. I haven't committed adultery. Go read the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, You've heard it is said. You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who's looked lustfully has already committed adultery in their heart. You've heard that it was said, Thou shalt not kill. But I tell you, you hate your brother. You call him fool. You've killed him in your heart. We've broken all ten. Repeatedly. None of us have kept him, but Jesus kept all of them perfectly in our place in every way that we could not. He did that, and then he willingly went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin that we deserve in order to absorb, absorb the wrath of God in our place and give us Grace, favor. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is the mercy seat. He's the proof that not only does God accept the payment of a substitute, but that all God himself is our substitute. That the Son of God stepped out of heaven and entered into our own mess. He got into the pit with us in order to lift us up out of it. He took and absorbed God's wrath and gave us favor. Grace is costly. It is costly. That's what Jonah helps us see here. It comes at great cost. Not to you, but to God Himself and the person and work of Jesus Christ. The reality is that there are many people in the church today who sing the words to amazing grace, but they're just offering mere lip service. Just lip service to the idea. Because grace has not truly yet and profoundly changed them. God's grace becomes wondrously beautiful, endlessly comforting, only as you grasp the truth that you are a sinner who deserves nothing but condemnation from God. And that you are utterly incapable of saving yourself, doing anything to fix it, but that God has saved you, despite your sin, at infinite cost to himself, Some people can't grasp the the wonder and beauty of grace because they don't think they need it. They think, well, if I can just come to church more, if I just pray more, if I just do a little bit more good out there, they don't think they need it. They think they can overcome it by their own effort. And so they can't grasp the wonder and the beauty of God's grace for them. Others may actually see themselves as complete and utter failures, but they fail to grab hold of grace because they think nothing could ever possibly rescue them. They are too far beyond the reach of God's mercy. But the wonder of the grace of God given to us is that Jesus, His grace, is sufficient. Sufficient for all our sin. It's sufficient. His grace abolishes guilt forever. Forever. He's not just some decent person. He is God in the flesh who exchanged His perfection for your sin. Who paid your penalty in full. He declares from His cross, it is finished. Paid in full. All of it who absorbs every last drop of God's wrath meant for you and your sin. The truth is, no matter how filled with regret you are, no matter how great of a failure you feel like you are, even if you were a hundred times worse than you actually are, your sins would still be no match for the grace of Jesus. No match. He has grace upon grace upon grace for you. His grace is sufficient for you. Christian, because of Jesus, you are no longer marked by your sin. Do you understand that? Do you believe that? You're not marked by your sin. You've been covered by his blood. You're marked by him and his perfection and his sacrifice. His payment for you. You're covered by that. Even at the very bottom, because of Jesus in God's eyes, you are as clean as Jesus. Even at the very bottom, in Him, when you put your hope in Christ, you are as clean as Jesus in the the sight of God. That's how He sees you through Christ. And that, when you believe that, when you embrace that, that brings you up that lifts you up out of the pit. Jesus brings you up from the pit. This helps us understand why it is that we find grace so often at the bottom instead of at the high points in life because it's really hard for the human heart to learn its own sinfulness its own, and its own impotence to do anything about it by simply being told you're sinful and you can't do anything about it. You have to be shown You have to experience it, and often painfully experience it. But what a gift of grace. What a gift the grace of Jesus is. Jonah's prayer helps us to see what grace is. Grace is an undeserved gift, freely given, at great cost to God's own Son, that is sufficient to cover over all our sins. I'm going to say that again. Grace is an undeserved gift freely given at great cost to God's own Son that is sufficient to cover over all of our sins. That's what grace is. And we also get a look here at how grace works, how it works. To summarize, grace works both swiftly and slowly. It works both swiftly and slowly. Its impact is both immediate and long-term. Right? You see this here with Jonah. Right? Jonah recognizes his sinfulness, the desperate nature of his condition when he says "Like the bars are closed upon him forever. But then he immediately proclaims right after that, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. He is lost and condemned, unable to escape the prison of his own sin, and yet God saves him. It happens swiftly, in a moment, and immediately as he encounters and embraces God's grace for him. He's brought up both physically and spiritually, and he begins to immediately praise God in these moments, right? He's immediately praising God. He's dedicating himself to God. Even before he has any assurance that he will ever escape the belly of the fish, he's worshiping God, resting in his grace, Making vows to God. But you see, that's the real deliverance here. That's the real deliverance in the text. It's, the real deliverance is not him being released from the fish. It's coming to own and acknowledge his sin, confessing it before God, seeing he can do nothing to save himself, yet remembering that God has provided a means of rescue through substitutionary sacrifice. Remembering and trusting in that sacrifice is what at once, swiftly, immediately brings the real deliverance. Jonah feels this and he can't contain it. He can't contain it. So he ends his prayer here with a shout, with an exclamation, a rejoicing, saying in verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. In the belly of the fish, he exclaims, salvation belongs to the Lord. As Tim Keller points out, some have called that, this text the central verse of the scriptures. Or at least it expresses with great economy of language, he says, the main point of the entire Bible. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It comes only from the Lord. It belongs to God alone. No one else. If someone is saved, it's God's doing from start to finish. It's all him. It belongs to the Lord. It's not partly from you and partly from him. No, it's all from him. It's all from him. If you say, I I wish I were more worthy, then the reality is you still don't understand it. Because Jesus is your worthiness if you say, I want God in my life, but I don't see him working, then you still don't understand how fundamental grace is. Because if you want him at all, that's a sign that God is at work in your life. Because you are not capable of wanting him on your own. You're not capable of manufacturing that desire on your own. That comes from him. Salvation belongs to the Lord from start to finish. He plans your rescue in eternity past. And Jesus comes and he accomplishes your rescue in his life, death, and resurrection. And the Holy Spirit enables you to receive that rescue, to receive that grace by opening your heart to it, stirring your affections for the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's all his doing. And when his grace grabs you, it comes with immediate impact. So Jonah shouts, salvation belongs to the Lord. And Jonah worships God, and he gives himself to the Lord making vows. There's immediate impact, and there's immediate deliverance. Spiritually, you are immediately, at that moment of of faith, that moment of of, of experiencing God's grace and grabbing hold of it, immediately, at that very first moment, you are delivered from the condemnation of your sins, past, present, and future. That's the wonderful promise of Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your guilt is gone. It's been taken. Jesus has taken it. He's removed it from you as far as the east is from the west. He's taken your sins from you. Immediately, you are delivered from the condemnation of your sins. Immediately, you are forgiven. Immediately, you are adopted into the family of God as God's sons and daughters. Immediately, you're not just welcomed into the family, you're wrapped up into the embrace of Jesus himself in his arms. And nothing can separate you from his love. Nothing. Immediately. Swiftly. But there's also A process to grace. A process that works very slowly at times. You see that here with Jonah. He's delivered immediately, yet there's there's still much work for grace to do on his heart and in his life. It's subtle, but you see it in verse 8. Jonah says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Now what Jonah says in verse 8 is absolutely true. idolatry blocks people from receiving and experiencing God's grace. That's true. It's true. But the question we have to ask is, who are the those that he's talking about there? When he says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Who are the those? Who's the there? And the larger context of the book of Jonah clues us in. That Jonah is not talking about himself here. He's not. But he's talking about the Gentile pagans. He's talking about those Ninevites who worship literal statues, literal idols. They are the ones, Jonah says, who forfeit their right for God's grace. They forfeit their hope of steadfast love. There's no right for God's grace. What this means is that even while Jonah has had a breakthrough here, he has still not grasped God's grace as deeply as we might at first glance assume. Jonah is still clinging here, even now, even in this moment of experiencing this transformational moment, he's still clinging to a sense of superiority and self righteousness. That's going to lead to quite the temper tantrum when we get to chapter four, when God has mercy on people that Jonah assumes have forfeited their hope for steadfast love. They've forfeited the opportunity to experience his mercy. Jonah can see the literal idols of the Ninevites, but he can't see the more subtle idols of his own heart that are blocking him from grasping the fullness of God's grace. He's he's still not realizing that just like the pagans, he too lives only and equally by God's grace. Grace is still working on him, though. And there's still much work to be done. But God is still at work with Jonah. He's still pursuing him. God, even in this moment, right, God's still at work. He, He releases Jonah from the fish. Even though we'll come to see that his repentance is only partial God is still patiently working in his life, just as he does with us, flawed and clueless though we are. And this should give us much hope. Hope to know that that through faith in Christ, our eternal standing before the Lord is immediately and eternally secure. Nothing can change it. Nothing can take that from you, Christian. And hope to know that despite the reality that, that many flaws and failures remain in our own lives and in our hearts, God's grace is still at work. He's not finished with us. Though we still run from him at times, he's faithful to pursue every time. And we can be confident, as Paul says in Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He will. The finished work of Jesus, the greater Jonah, can give us great hope in this. When Jesus refers to that sign of Jonah and calls himself the greater than Jonah, in the Gospels. He refers to the three days, the three nights that Jonah was in the belly of the fish. and On the cross, Jesus repeats to an infinitely greater degree the suffering of Jonah when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He feels the pain to an infinitely greater degree of being cut off from the presence of God. Jonah went into the depths of the sea in order to save the sailors, but Jesus went into the depths of death and eternal separation from God in order to not only save Jonah, but to save you and me. Jonah was buried beneath the flood of the waters, but, but Jesus was buried under the flood of God's wrath for our sin. Jesus descended into the pit for you and took the full weight of the punishment that was meant for you, that he might bring you up, restored, rescued, forgiven, and embraced forevermore. The way to understand and experience the wonder of His grace is laid out for us here in this prayer. It begins with seeing the reality of your sin and your inability to do anything about it. And then you call. You call out to the Lord. Out of your distress, you call out to Him. And as you call out to Him, you remember. You remember what Jesus has done for you to satisfy your need, to accomplish your rescue. And then you simply give yourself to Him as a sacrifice of praise. You give Him your very life in service, in love, in devotion. Know that salvation belongs to the Lord. It's all from Him. And call to Him, rest in Him. Remember what He's done and live for Him. Enjoying His grace as he keeps working his grace into your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us today to not only see our sin and our need for rescue, but but to also see your gracious provision in your Son. Help us to to cling to you, Jesus. May we be forever changed by your grace, experiencing the, the forgiveness and freedom that comes immediately, but also enjoying the work of the Spirit to apply your grace to every aspect of our hearts and lives Day by day as we journey with you. Help us to grow in our understanding of your grace. That we wouldn't offer mere lip service as we sing today. But that we would be people just saturated in. And enjoying and enveloped in your grace. Enjoying it. Embodying it. And also sharing it with anyone we meet. Lord have your way.